Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Today, I'm really excited to have Dr. Julie Lawson Davis on the podcast. Dr. Davis is a career educator with over 30 years of experience in varied roles, classroom teacher, district program coordinator of gifted services, state level director of gifted services, author, researcher, consultant, and assistant professor of education and director of the Center for Gifted Education at the University of Louisiana Lafayette. She is now serving as associate professor and chair of teacher education at Virginia Union University, and her first book was called Bright, Talented, and Black, A Guide for Families of African-American Gifted Learners. Hey, Joy! <laughs> Hi, Scott! How are you? How you doing? How are you? Good, good. good. I'm good. That was one of the longest bios I've ever uh, given to any, any <laughs> well, of my you didn't have to do all that. You could have cut <laughs> it in half. It. You deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> so we're longtime Facebook friends, and uh, yes. we have uh, a whole bunch of mutual uh, colleagues and things. And and I'm a huge admirer of your research, and I, I thought we could talk about it today. Okay, well that sounds good. I'm excited to share this work whenever I have an opportunity. So you know, you tell me what it is you want to know most. What is it you're most interested in? And I'll just try to respond. Great. So I know you're really passionate about the work you do, and it's very obvious it comes from a very authentic place. 
is there sort of a story of how you got involved in this particular line of research? And is there any sort of back specific backstory to this? Yes, there, there sure is a backstory, uh, Scott. Uh, first of all, uh, my own story as a gifted child uh, growing up early on in an urban environment where I was exposed to, you know, more comprehensive education. You know, we, we had an arts program that was very, very nurturing. And we also had opportunities for acceleration. And, uh, and that was in the Northeast, in Newark, New Jersey. And then my family moved uh, from Newark in the mid-60s down to Virginia into a segregated schooling environment where I was in the rural areas, small school, limited resources, very, very passionate teachers, of course, but very limited resources. So it was a, a shift in my own schooling as a child. And it really struck me that there are individuals around the nation, even at that time as a kid, I was thinking, I didn't know that children went to schools like this. You know, I was thinking then, I said, so why is it that these children don't have the same kinds of resources and access to resources that children in the more urban, more suburban areas have? And so that was a long time ago. And then as I continued on in school, uh, I, I became a school leader and someone who always felt the need to speak up. Let me fast forward into getting into gifted education as a discipline. I'm in the rural area with a principal who needed a teacher to volunteer to go to a workshop at the College of William and Mary that was going to introduce teachers in the state of Virginia to a new mandate from the state to serve gifted children. So again, he came to me and said, Joy, do you think this is something you'd be interested in? And I said, of course. And so I went and that's how I began my career in Gifted Ed. It was actually the Richardson Conference that William & Mary began hosting many, many years ago. And they brought in people from all over the country who were in critical thinking skills, you know, pedagogy and research, and those individuals who were early in the in the field of gifted ed around, you know, assessing children, developing the appropriate curriculum. And so that was, oh my gosh, that was back in the 80s when I first went to that conference. And from that point on, I just continued to be involved and, and was very interested and continued to see discrepancies, Scott. And yeah. so wherever I saw the discrepancies, I thought, well, it looks like, first of all, I'm the only person of color in this room. Something is wrong with this picture. And then when I would go into schools to work with district coordinators or teachers, I also found the same situation where the gifted class was a class in the corner of the school. And when you open the door, all the children in the classroom were white, probably middle class students. And you may, I may have been inside of a predominantly black school, and I didn't understand that why that was going on, and that we had to do something about this. Yes. So that's the backstory. But again, that was in the eighties, and as you, I guess, saw in my vida, you've seen that I've been deeply involved and enmeshed. But along the way, I also started receiving training. I, I my mentor 
in this field is Joyce Fantasso Baskin. And I know you know Joyce and her work. Oh, yes. oh, yeah, and she was the one who pulled me aside and said, Joy, you need to get into this program and you need to, you know, become someone who can uh, play a critical role in Gifted Ed. And so I did. I listened to her. I trusted her word. I trusted what she saw in me. And I, you know, I just went forth after that. That's wonderful. Uh, we all need mentors like that. You know, I have a lot of deep respect for the work you do. It's funny. I Not funny. It's tragic. But, you know, coincidental that I, as a young kid sitting in special ed, I was so confused. Like, I was actually like a minority in special ed being white. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it was like a, a crazy reversal. And I was like, something's really messed up about the system where I looked at the gifted ed classroom and it was 99% white. And I was like, something's not right about this situation. You know, I know these people are, I, I, I'm like, you know, these are my friends, you know, and, and these are my friends that I'm, and I know that they're capable of so much more. So, right. so this is the crux of the question here, Joy, is like, what sort of changes can we make and what have you, the work you've done to help show people that these kids are capable of a lot more than we're giving them credit for? Well, you know, I was thinking uh, about this uh, earlier this afternoon and, and thinking about in just maybe the last eight to 10 years, the changes that I've seen come about and what role I may have played in some of those changes. Great. And one of the things, Scott, that I found that was absolutely necessary was to bring more individuals who connected with the lives of these children into the discussion. You know, bring those people to the table because what we had in gifted ed as far back as the, back in the 1930s and 40s and 50s and 60s, we had a number of people who were conducting research and the scholarly research uh, only stayed in higher education. It didn't get into the classroom. It didn't touch the lives of the practitioners. And so there could have been some great things going on. And yet the people who needed it most didn't always have access to the answers that they needed to change conditions for these children. And so what I've seen happen, and I hope I played a part in this, is that we brought more people to the table, classroom teachers who are not always involved in gifted ed, but like you say, your experience was as a student, they saw some things that were happening, but they didn't always get a chance to voice their opinions. And through the magic of social media, thank God for social media, we have been able to reach more people. Just reaching people through utilizing blogging, Twitter, Facebook, and then, you know, taking this information and and crafting it in such a way that they would understand and they could be affirmed by what they're understanding. So their stories now. And I'm, this is what I'm really working hard on, Scott, is getting the stories from parents and teachers of children like your friends that you said were in school with you and the yeah. students that I saw along the way. Get those people to tell their story. And then we find that when they write their story or tell their story, it sounds just like a gifted child is just wrapped up in another package. Yeah. And and that for me is it's what's got to happen here. You know, people have asked me over and over again, can you tell me how does a black child demonstrate his or her giftedness? Yeah. 
and I would say, well, a black child demonstrates their giftedness by showing you their creativity, their verbal acuity. They love words. They perhaps are some of the early readers in the classroom. They're the children who get intensely involved in the projects that they work on. And so they really don't look a lot different, except there's some cultural factors involved, of yeah, course. I was going to ask they, you about that. Yeah, so there are some cultural factors and some places where we have seen in the research where you will see these children demonstrating who they are simply because of the environment they've come from, the home they've come from, the culture that they've come from. And so, yes, we do have that information. But by and large, when you talk about people being gifted, the traits are pretty much the same. It's just that they may show it differently. And then I I would have to say, and this is the, the part that bothers me the most, is that they may show their giftedness, but the people who are looking at them, especially classroom teachers, who are not from their background, who are not from their culture, who don't have the same sensitivity to them, they won't see it. Right. They won't see it. Well, and that's sad. No, it's very sad. And I'm wondering, like, you know, I have a question, but first of all, do you like the label gifted? <laughs> you knew, I knew you, knew, you, you knew I wasn't going to let that slide. <laughs> I know, I know. I have to tell you, and maybe it's because I've seen it so much over the years and I've seen it being distorted so much. I'm beginning more and more not to like the label. And, um, but I'll tell you what, I've had to kind of stay in the, you know, in the trenches with the label until I see that label applied equitably. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're kind of working under the current environment structures. Yeah. Right. And until we can see the giftedness that may be demonstrated in any child, regardless of the color of their skin, the income, who their parents are, until we can see that in any child, as they would demonstrate it to us, that I think we have to hold on to the label because that's where we are as a culture. You know, we, we package people, we package situations, and then we attend to that package. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. My my concern is that the um, – it's sort of like it's treated as like essentialism, you know, like – and I think this is – you know, this speaks to your mission as well. You know, when we conceptualize giftedness as this thing that you're either born with or you're not, you know, lots of kids who might not be showing it at one period of time for a whole bunch of reasons. And I think especially, you know, like young black kids, just be those who are in low SES environments, um, it might not be that visible. And we could too quickly just put them in the in the not category too quickly. And I know you totally agree with that. So I've, I'm worried that the label and the kind of connotations around it are actually working against your cause. Well, you know, I think that we'll have to build a strong case for coming up with another way of having these conversations without that label before we can discard the label. Yeah, exactly. Like we need to be on the the same like conceptual understanding. But, you know, there's a problem, though, because the people in the field disagree so much with each other on what the heck that label actually even means. You know, <laughs> oh, I've been through that. Yes. And I'm, I'm still there. But, you know, you can imagine when I was state director here in Virginia for gifted programs and we had 140 some odd districts. Right. Yeah. And we didn't have what was called a reciprocal agreement district to district. So a kid could be in one district and, and their family moved over the summer, going to another district and they're no longer gifted. And, right, and so right. 
that was just maddening. That was maddening to me because then I would get phone calls and then I would go out or I would, you know, try to, I was not in the position to say, if you don't do this right, you won't get your money. But I could, you know, give advice and support. My uh, supervisor said, Joy, just be careful how you say these things because we're not in the position to monitor and we mandate, but we can't monitor. That didn't make any sense to me either. But anyway, so here we are with children who are demonstrating traits that would put them above and beyond because the, you know, we were using the Marlin definition says that these students would need to have something that's provided for them that's above and beyond what's available in the regular classroom. And so they could be in one place and have that need and then they wouldn't change. They, you know, they may grow a month older or two months older, but then go to the next place and they, their needs could not be met. So that's when the issue around the labeling, you know, first kind of hit me as, you know what, this is probably not a good thing. You know, we've got to come up with a better way of making sure that children have their intellectual needs met without this label. But until we can do that better and be equitable, Scott, I wouldn't say out loud to anyone, we can't use the label right now. I'm just afraid of that. I definitely understand. You know, I, something that struck me, I thought was, um, it's always stuck in my mind, is the Project Bright work. Are you familiar with that? Project Bright work? Yeah, it's called. No, well, I'm not. Well, Go ahead, it's, called, more. it's called Project Bright, but I was just mm-hmm. saying the work by. Yeah, so what they did is they tested um, like a whole, they have like gifted behaviors that they taught. They had a whole curriculum. They taught everyone in the school gifted behaviors, a whole list. And they found that by the end of the program, one-third of ethnic and racial minorities qualified for gifted education than did before that program. And Yes, you're referring to the program out of Duke University? I think so. I Is think, that the one? I think so. I'm not sure. Probably. Yes, yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I want to hear what you yeah. go on. I, I think I'm familiar with it. Yes. Yes, Project mm-hmm. Bright Idea. Right idea. Yeah, yeah, that's yes, it. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> I actually worked with them. I actually went yes. down to do a uh, summer workshop and met with some of their parents and some of their teachers uh, a few years ago. And so I became, you know, a little involved in what they were doing. And, and I've actually taken this whole, that whole concept out when I do professional development and share that whole idea with others. And I share their videos and say, look, if we treat these children as if they're gifted, Right? Yes. Then they're going to demonstrate something to us differently than they would if we didn't treat them this way. And they'll at least demonstrate something more or better. And, right. And, and right. That, that's always better than not better. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. I, I just always, I'm just such a big fan of that, that project. And yeah, so I think it's just further evidence for just, it's not like you either have it or you don't. And I just don't like that kind mm-hmm. of thinking that we have in the school mm-hmm. system. But I'd love to hear more about um, the work that you're doing and um, some insights that you've found to help give people more opportunities. Well, you know, as I said earlier, one of the things that I've made a strong effort to do was to have individuals share their voice and tell their stories about their bright children, their gifted children, their children who the schools would say to them, you know, well, they're not cutting it. They missed this test by one point those kinds of foolish things that go on every day to hurt children in schools. Once these structured programs, as you said, uh, are set up, 
that we keep children out of the structured programs. And it appears, based on the research, that the majority of the children who are kept away from these programs are Black students and low-income students and Hispanic students. Those three groups are the most underrepresented in these programs across the country. And so you can't help but think that there is some discrimination going on here that is just totally unfounded. And so we really have to work harder to have more people involved in this whole process, get more people of color into these programs, these graduate programs, get more teachers of color who are actually teaching these students in schools. And then, of course, as I said earlier, get more parents who can talk about their own experiences with their children so that they can provide evidence just, you know, about how this kid was when they came out of the womb, you know, what kinds of behaviors did they see? And again, as I said, what we're hearing from these parents is nothing different from what we hear from other parents who have already been a part of this labeling system that um, has caused their children to be set apart. And that's a problem. I don't, you know, the discrimination that is continuing to go on causes problems. People get upset, especially in the public school setting. So what, what I am attempting to do is to help shed more light on the story, you know, tell yes. more about the story. I, I think like the that. story has not been told by the people who really know the story. And their stories will legitimize and affirm everything that we know about those children who do have these kinds of traits. And then once we get to that place that we, we recognize giftedness across groups, then I think we will be able to get rid of that label. <laughs> you know, years ago, I walked into a uh, work session with the coordinators of the gifted programs across the state. And I said, this just came right off my tongue. And I probably, I think I regret it afterwards, but it just came right out. I said, you know, one of these days, if we do our job right. And then I said, well, not we can't speak for you, but I speak for me. One of these days, if I do my job right, I'm going to talk myself out of a job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I really like that. Because, yeah. because gifted education is a form of segregation in itself as well. In itself. In itself it is. Yeah. It absolutely is. And, and, yeah. I, and I think we both strive towards a world where there isn't any segregation where any group of people are singled out as better than others. Right. Just, right. just different. And, and that no one's discriminated against based on their skin or et cetera. Yeah, so I think there's we have a long way to go, but I like that. I really like how you just put it. So, what, mm -hmm. tell me about the work you do with NAGC because you're on their board, right? And congratulations, first of all. Yes, this is my second term on the board, and I'm what's considered an at-large member. So I have the opportunity to speak again across the board for the constituency, whether they be administrators, teachers, parents, researchers. I have that opportunity. And so in that role, you know, we have our regular meetings and we speak to a number of the issues and concerns and we get our convention set up. But it's been a very exciting place for me to be to, again, use this gift that I have to speak up, you know, to advocate. I listen, thoughtfully listen to issues as they're presented. And I hope I'm thoughtfully responsive, you know. And again, even at that level, 
there are only two African-Americans who are on the board. One of those individuals is actually a board appointment by the president. And then we have one Hispanic, Latina, on the board, a great woman from Arizona, Adina Boulez. And we are underrepresented even at that level. Of course, now our executive director, which is really a great thing, our executive director, Renee Islas, is Hispanic. And so I see some movement at the national level. We are working harder to bring to the attention of everyone this whole issue of inequity. And I think that the board as a whole has that as its vision. Will we ever be able to get to a place where we don't use the label (laughs) with this organization? That's not likely, but it's certainly good to hear the conversations around equity and it's good to hear the national push towards that end. And then the support that's being provided for school district personnel when they come to the convention. And then it's through all of our media that we are able to put out some things available to just the members, but much of it is available to anyone. So we are feeling really good about being on the board now. At first, I wasn't sure that I did the right thing, but now I feel the second term, and also just because I see the board moving in a different direction, I feel very good about the work that that we are doing. Again, beyond that, I also have opportunities continuously to work with school districts. And my issue, of course, is diversity and equity and help them do a better job of recognizing the problems inherent in the processes that they have set up already. And then how can they do better by these children, recognizing that giftedness really knows no boundaries. You know, this is not, again, it's not about, you know, the package that the child is in. It's about, you know, what it is that they're capable of doing within the confines of this labeling process. Yeah, I have to keep going back to that, within the confines of that. One of these days, it won't be this way, though, Scott. One of these days. I know, I know. And I mean, you don't have to do that on my behalf. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just telling you, I'm serious about that. I've felt that way always. But I realized somewhere between some of these positions that I was moving from place to place and, you know, moving, you know, into specialized programs, taking on roles as grant leaders, you know, grant leader and, and uh, actually served as a, an executive director of a governor's school here in Virginia, high school program for uh, high ability and gifted uh, artists and technology students, the arts and technology program. I uh, actually initiated, you know, with a team, the identification protocol. We set up the curriculum. I hired the new teachers. It was an awesome experience. And we were able to bring into that school environment students who would have never had opportunities like those within our school, in their home school, and they would have never been recognized as having special gifts. We That school at the time uh, actually had the highest number of students of color and low-income students of any governor's school in the state. And so the effort has to be made to target these students in order for us to, you know, to be more equitable. We have to target the students through any mechanisms. And I've been fortunate, you know, to have those opportunities or, again, because I speak out and I will do the work that's required. Once I speak up, people call on me and I'm glad to be able to, you know, to make a difference. That's wonderful. 
So let's talk about this identifying, this identification procedures, because one big problem um, in terms of equity seems to be the use of IQ tests in the sense mm -hmm. that it is known that African-Americans score on average about 15 points lower on these IQ tests. What do you think are some of the reasons for that, that point differential? And do you agree that we should broaden our net of identification procedures? Oh, no question. We've seen the identification protocol issue change over the years from school districts that were using just uh, one, one test score, an IQ score, or an ability score, sometimes even just grades, to uh, which we know was really not a be a, the best predictor of a student's capability, intellectual capability. But, you know, when we, when we know, we already have this information, we're, we're smart enough about um, IQ tests to recognize, as you just stated, that there is a discrepancy in the points differential. There's a difference in the way that students respond in general to IQ tests. Not all students, not all, no. but some. And we already know that then that should be enough evidence for us to not want to utilize such a narrow frame to identify those students who need a service above and beyond, above and beyond. We shouldn't use that as the frame. And so we, we really have to begin looking at other kinds of instruments, other kinds of procedures. And when school districts have, have broadened their identification protocol to include nonverbal ability assessments, interviews, student work samples, they have seen a difference in who these children are that they are calling gifted and high potential in their school districts. They've been able to do it differently, but not until they can do that will, uh, will we see a change come about. As a matter of fact, not as many school districts use IQ tests as, uh, as the general population thinks because IQ testing is expensive. And the funding that's being made available to gifted education across the nation is not what it ought to be. And so they're not, I mean, there are districts that still that use IQ tests, but more often than not, they're using ability tests. They're using tests like the Otis Lennon, the Colgat, you know, oh, they're no. using. <laughs> I can't, you, didn't, you didn't just go I there. You didn't just go there. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I shouldn't go there, right? I'm sorry. Uh, but yeah, that's what they're using. They don't have the funding to like, set aside school site people, yeah. you know, and provide uh, the, the individualized assessment oh. that they would desire. They don't have that kind of, those funds are not available to them. So again, if we use a multiple criteria approach, which we have learned is best practice, then uh, we're going to have a better chance of bringing in a more equitable pool of students who should be, you know, who we can look at to see what their their need for services, you know, what is the need for services of, of this population of students. We're not, it's not a club. It's not a popularity contest. <laughs> We're not trying to set aside students to award them something special. We're trying to deal with who they are and what their needs are. And that takes a bit of a shift in some thinking, I think. In some places, being in the gifted program is like an award or something that somebody's been given to you. So we have problems when there are school districts who are still promoting their programs in that way. And parents or teachers believe that that's what the program service is all about. We, we do continue to have problems with that. 
trying to think if there's anything else in particular I wanted to ask you. I wanted, I did want to point out that my colleague James Kaufman and I, we've, you know, we found that, and other researchers have found this too, that tests of divergent thinking and creativity show much fewer race differences than mm-hmm. IQ tests do. And I think that's really interesting. You know, I think that maybe from a, like we we're talking about cultural issues earlier, perhaps mm-hmm. you know, in the in, in the African American community it's more accepted to be creative than to be academically intelligent, for instance. And so there may, there might be these other ways of showing, you know, what they're capable of that go beyond the IQ mm-hmm. test. So I wonder. Well, you, you know about the work of uh, Paul Torrance. Um, oh, that's my guy. That's my guy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, that, that work was promoted widely uh, in the field of gifted ed for many, many years. And so there were school personnel who were actually going to receive training and understanding, you know, how to utilize the Torrance test for creative thinking as a part of their protocol. And so some districts still have that within their their protocols. But again, uh, those individuals who are responsible for uh, administering the Torrance test or any version thereof need to understand what they're doing. And then, of course, uh, there are some costs incurred in actually having the test scored if you don't know how to do that. But yes, we, you know, for those districts, and, and one of the reasons why we think that the Torrance test was uh, popularized in in high minority communities and high minority school districts was because we, you know, of the of the whole idea of creativity and, and what does creativity mean, you know, within the context of, of being black or being Latino, you know, what does that mean and how how is that accepted? within the community, as you suggest. Now, I don't want to suggest that the Black community or the Latino community does not accept and doesn't promote intellectual giftedness right. or academic giftedness. That's absolutely not the case, uh, But what, or it's not accepted, because we know within the community itself, that is promoted. You know, academics is promoted. Intellectual giftedness is promoted. So we, you know, we have to, you know, kind of pull back some of the covers, the layers on what's going on in the community that sometimes the outer community doesn't always know about, is not always familiar with. But again, if once we get people from within these these more isolated communities, and in some cases, the black community, the Latino community, more isolated, once we get people from those groups involved in this discussion, then things begin to change. Things do begin to change. But I, I do agree about the creativity piece. And we've used that. I've used it in districts. I've trained people in utilizing uh, that as a tool. And we and have always encouraged districts to keep the a creativity component in their protocol in some way. Sometimes, again, it all depends on how much money they have to allocate to this particular uh, program and how much pressure is being put upon them You know, outside to either keep creativity on the table or take it out, you know, take it out of the equation altogether. I really like that perspective. Well, yeah, thank you for that clarification. Um, certainly mm-hmm. academics is appreciated in the community, in, in the African-American community. But what I've noticed is I think there's a problem with just youth in general, regardless of your race or ethnicity, that just like being smart is just not considered, you know, people get bullied in school if you're a teenager and you stand out, you stand out too much in academics. So there might Mm -hmm. be just a larger issue of us, you know, kind of showing more love to the nerds like ourselves. (laughs) Yeah, show more love. That's right. More acceptance. 
exactly. Start, let, let's start a hashtag, nerd love. <laughs> <laughs> nerd love. But you know, again, Scott, there are a lot there. You know, I, again, I say I love uh, social media because I'm be, becoming more and more aware of schools across the country. Some of them are charter schools, of course, but there are schools and then there are community groups who are doing things on the weekends with uh, the black students. And they have these enrichment programs that are just awesome. And they are focusing on and they're actually utilizing the same terminology. They're calling these kids geniuses. They're calling them nerd. You know, they're just the groups are clustering together around intellectualism. And I think that it's awesome when you're talking about uh, these children being a part of a community that is not perceived in that way. It's not perceived, but they are becoming more and more a part of that and speaking openly about that. I'm even hearing some of the work of Dr. W.E.B. Dubois, you know, more openly again, we're hearing more about the Talented Tenth. There are groups that are naming themselves a Talented Tenth group, you know. So it's just, it's exciting to see what's going on today. There is a move towards acceptance and promoting intellectual behaviors to, you know, to kind of counteract what you were saying earlier about this whole idea about being smart is not cool, you know? So yeah. the community is taking that on for itself. I'm going to Arizona tomorrow and uh, next week I'll be at the Arizona Alliance for Black School Educators uh, conference. One, of, I'll be one of their keynote speakers. I'm oh. excited about that. Congrats. And I'm excited because usually when I speak or go and help, I'm always the one who's going to help those individuals involved in gifted education, seldom do I have opportunity to speak to an organization that focuses on the broader population. And so it's good to know that they're interested enough. You know what I'm saying? You know, that that I've gotten this invitation and that I will have a chance to speak truth to some of this information. Same things we're talking about. I can share with uh, this alliance at their statewide meeting of black teachers. And so I'm very, very pleased to know that people are interested and they're not treating this thing called gifted ed or treating it as if something that doesn't belong to them, you know, so or they don't want to have anything to do with it, well, you that's, know. That's where so I'm at. really excited. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. And Thank um, you. that's where we're going to make the big changes is by making this more mainstream. and Mainstream. Uh, not only talking amongst, you know, in the gifted conferences, that's not going to make the biggest changes. It's not going to. Exactly, Scott. Exactly. We have to cross the aisle. We have to, you know, make more net. We have to network more. We just have to, you know, if we want to make changes and want to see what we do as educators uh, and researchers and, and, you know, people who have the great ideas. If we want to do this better, we have to it has to be more mainstream. It has to reach out further. Yeah. Yeah. But one thing is clear. There needs to be a change. It, it is just ridiculous when you go into most public schools and you just see such this clear segregation between like the kids that were singled out with highest potential who are predominantly white middle class and the kids who were singled out with the biggest behavioral problems and learning disabilities as being poor, you know, African-American mm-hmm. and Latino. I mean, that's, that's a real big problem. And it thank, is. Thank you for um, the, the great work you're doing. I just want to support you and encourage you to keep it up. Thank you so much, Scott, for having me. 
I apologize for the delay in getting getting started, but I really appreciate you doing this. No worries. Thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you for your work. Thank you so Aww. much for the work that you're doing. I'm excited every time I, <laughs> I have a chance to read one of your papers online or just some of your posts. I'm real excited. And uh, Thanks, Joe. Yeah, and I bring people to you as well. I do that. <laughs> Aww, I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can visit thepsychologypodcast.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.